Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Collander, and every month I speak to a former Oxford student about their career, life after Oxford, and memories of their alma mater. In this podcast, I'm delighted to speak to the Right Honourable the Lord Patton of Barnes, the Chancellor of the University of Oxford. Lord Patton, thank you very much for agreeing to share your experiences and insights in this interview. Delighted to be with you. Let us begin with your studies at Balliol College in Oxford, where you read Modern History. Which historical periods grabbed your attention as an undergraduate? When I came up to Oxford, principally as a medievalist, I'd done mostly medieval history at school, though a bit of Tudors and Stuarts as well. That perhaps wasn't surprising since I'd gone to a Benedictine school and they were um, very much, uh, I think, in the shade of uh, David Knowles, the great historian of monastic England. But at Balliol, um, I was much influenced by the the quality of the history dons, and I I had uh, two who taught me perhaps more than any of the others. One was Maurice Keane, continuing with uh, medieval history, but the other was Richard Cobb, who was one of the greatest historians in either Britain or France of the French Revolution, a wonderfully anarchic Tory figure who uh, was a very exciting teacher about the French Revolution and about 18th century history uh, as a whole. So I suppose um, I got much more involved in French history and European history. And what was it like to be a student in the swinging 60s? Well, you didn't realise they were swinging um, uh, as much when you were actually swung, I don't think. The the most obvious examples of, of swinging 60s were the pop groups which were just coming onto the scene. The first dance I went with uh, my wife to, uh, she was at St Hilda's and we got to know one another here, um, was um, a, a commemoral at Maudlin where the band, the main band, was the Rolling Stones. Wow. So that and the uh, early Beatles were... I suppose, the best examples of swinging 60s. And I understand you were also able to pursue your love of cricket as a student. Yeah, I I played quite a lot of sport at um, uh, at Balliol. I played in the rugby team. My predecessor as fly half for the the Balliol rugby team was the England fly half, uh, Richard Sharp, which is the nearest um, I can come to claiming any sporting fame. Um, I used to open the bowling for Balliol. Um, I thought I was quite fast when I came to um, Balliol from school, but um, I'm gradually slowed um, over the years. But I used to play quite a lot of cricket, and I used to also play for um, a, uh, a Sunday side. And after your studies, you joined the Conservative Research Department, rising to become its youngest ever director eight years later. Your political career then continued to go from strength to strength. You later became the MP for Bath, held a variety of ministerial appointments, and served as the last governor of Hong Kong, and also as the European Commissioner for External Relations, among other roles. After having studied the politics and global events of the past, you came to play your part in contemporary international events. Were you able to draw on your studies and lessons from Oxford during your high-profile career as a politician and diplomat? I think what I most learned from my time here, which was relevant to my subsequent political life was thinking for myself, being able to stand up for my um, views, being encouraged to stand up for my views and being able to write a reasonably clear prose. I think I, I think those were the things that mattered most to me. 
I, I wasn't destined for a career in politics in any sense. I was hoping to work um, in broadcasting. I applied for and indeed got a job with the BBC in the, as one of their um, graduate trainees. I hadn't been political at all at, at Balliol. I'd acted a lot as well as played games and done occasional um, work. But I went to America after Balliol and got involved in a, an American political campaign while there. And when I came back to England, uh, applied for the Conservative Research Department, which you mentioned. But I, th I think the, that it was um, that uh, ability or encouragement to stand up for my own political opinions, which made much more of an impact on my political life than anything I learned about the uh, consequences of the Thirty Years' War. As it were. It's that independence of thought and that rigour. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's um, you're aware of it from the time you're first challenged at a tutorial with some um, uh, absurd or generalised opinion. I can remember my very first tutorial reading an essay on Charlemagne and beginning with a sentence that Charlemagne can truly be called the founder of modern Europe and my uh, Don, Maurice Keane, was wandering around the room behind me saying... Um, sort of stammering, I, I beg your pardon, Mr. Patton. So I, I think the tutorial system, though it's not always perfect, is still the most extraordinary way of teaching um, clever young men and women. And since your political career began, there have been seismic changes in international relations. You've witnessed many of them firsthand and have written best-selling books on global politics. What have been the most significant developments in world affairs? I think the two most um, significant uh, developments in my lifetime have been, first of all, the collapse of communism, and in particular, the collapse of Russia's empire in um, Central and Eastern Europe, and secondly, the rise of China. Um, those have been extraordinary I think you use the word seismic um, changes. Um, all the time, of course, um, there's only been one real superpower, the United States, and we should be pretty grateful that, that for most of the time it's used its power um, with restraint and good sense, not always. Vietnam War, war of choice in Iraq, for instance, but by and large I think we've been lucky in our superpower during this period of uh, global change. And that rise of China, something that you saw when you were in Hong Kong? Yes, I did indeed. Um, I mean, I don't think China is um, about to become uh, the world's principal superpower, but it will be largely just because of its size. Um, it will be the largest economy in the world um, very shortly, if it isn't already just as it has been for the last for 18 out of the last 20 centuries. So China is, is a big player. Um, it's able to um, make an impact on the world order, but I don't think it's capable of reshaping the world order because I don't myself think that the Chinese political economic model is one which um, other countries on the whole choose to follow. And you will be speaking about politics and identity in the keynote lecture on Saturday the 19th of September during the alumni weekend in Oxford. 
could you please give us a taste of the insights you will share? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the politics of identity and the terrible harm that they've done, not least in the 20th century, whether you're talking about Hutus and Tutsis or um, Serbians and Croats or uh, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland or today, um, Sunni or Shia uh, across Western Asia. Uh, I'm very interested in the way that people sometimes allow a rather, an extremely, not even not rather, of an extremely simplified version um, of their own uh, bloodlines and clan loyalties to overwhelm any sense of common humanity. Um, and that's the sort of uh, thing I want to talk about. There's a very good book on it, um, by Amin Malouf called In the Name of Identity um, and uh, he writes as somebody who was born in the Lebanon who's Christian Arab writes in French um, what's his identity which is one of the things, questions he asks it's also a subject of which, on which of course Amartya Sen has written very well questioning whether we can really talk about um, western values as though they were owned and monopolized by the West, uh, very critical of whether we can uh, really make the sort of distinctions between continental civilizations that we sometimes do. So those are the sort of things they'll be talking about. And this year's Alumni Weekend is packed with more than 100 events on a wide variety of topics, from the Ebola vaccine trial and the cult of saints to Japanese calligraphy and the chance to play chess with a grand master. Are there any particular things that you plan to attend? Well, I won't be um, uh, playing chess with a grandmaster, I can tell you, because it wouldn't last very long. Um, now, I, I, I shall uh, look very carefully at the uh, programme and see um, uh, which other lectures or um, which other things I, I want to go to. I mean, I think it's amazing, um, not only at the alumni weekends in Oxford but the ones we've held uh, around the world both around Europe and in Asia and in America amazing how many subjects are covered and how, how often you want to go to uh, three things at the same time because they all grab your attention and that as it should be with a great world class university which has so many of its present uh, academic staff who have exciting things to say and so many of its alumni who've got exciting things to talk about and are there any sessions that have particularly stood out for you in the past at those alumni weekends in Oxford and also around the world? Yes, um, quite a few, but varied. Uh, Richard Carwin talking about American history in, in uh, New York. Uh, um, Shira West talking about um, art in Vienna um, a few months ago. Um, lectures which I occasionally have a bit of difficulty following even when they're delivered by somebody as brilliant as Marcus de Sotoy on an issue like symmetry um, a lecture uh, three or four years back on um, how Shakespeare wrote his plays the extent to which he wrote each character's part separately and people, the actors playing them would would uh, not, not know what the whole um, scene or the whole um, uh, play was going to be was going to be about or like so and um, there are all sorts of um, lectures I remember with huge uh, uh, enthusiasm and arguments that I remember um, I, th I think they're, they're invariably a terrific occasion. Oxford came top in last year's Research Excellence Framework, a national audit of university research 
and Oxford is regularly ranked as one of the top universities in the world. What are the prospects for the university in the 21st century? The prospects for the university are, as you suggested, or implied, extremely good. The last REF, uh, the last research assessment exercise, um, for example, showed how strong we are now in the sciences. People um, sometimes uh, don't recognise that sufficiently, but it's not just in the humanities and medical science that we're um, terrific, but um, engineering and maths have done very well, and other sciences right across the board in, in what's called the MPLS um, have done uh, outstandingly. So we're well placed internationally, but I think we've got to recognise how competitive the higher education sector is. I think in this country the government doesn't invest enough money in higher education, not in the sciences or the development of the sciences, for example, and we're going to have to work very hard, not least to raise more money to invest in uh, new uh, plant for our um, sciences, for physics, for chemistry, um, for um, interdisciplinary scientific work. Um, I think that's going to be the big challenge in the next few years, as well as to make sure that we continue to recruit um, such wonderfully talented um, undergraduates and very good people for postgraduate study as well. And finally, what do you most enjoy about your role as Chancellor of the University? Look, you'd have to be a person of, of particularly attenuated sensibilities. Um, not to be excited by um, having the connection that I am lucky enough to have with one of the very greatest universities in the world. Um, uh, It's impossible to be in Oxford for um, even a few nanoseconds without bumping into somebody who's doing something incredibly interesting. So um, I I very much enjoy this... um, association I have with the university which helped to make me whatever it is I am today um, which contributed to my identity and to go back to what I was talking about earlier and I think that all of us who've had the huge opportunity provided by Oxford um, uh, owe it to the university and to our country to try to make certain that as many other um, young people can continue to enjoy those enjoy those opportunities in the future. It's a it's a university which serves the world and pushes back the frontiers of knowledge to make the world a better place. Uh, and at the same time, I think um, stands four square um, uh, over some of the values which make us civilized. So it's a great privilege. Lord Patton, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts about your incredible career and your long-standing connections with Oxford. Thank you, Guy. Thank you very much indeed. For more information about the Alumni Weekend in Oxford this September, how to book and the other activities of the Alumni Office, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.